Please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3, and we are going to be looking at the second half of chapter 3 this morning, all the way to about halfway through the fourth chapter. That is, we are finishing up a series in which we have been looking how God reveals himself to Moses so that Moses may accomplish and do all that God calls him to do. God is sending him on a mission to lead his people out of, out of Egypt and to sustain Moses, to encourage him, to humble him. God reveals himself to Moses. It is imperative that Moses knows who this God is that he is going to declare to the people of Israel and to declare to the people of Egypt. More important, it is important for the people of Israel to know who this God is. But finally, it is important for all the world to know. That's ultimately what we saw at the very beginning. The reason God is acting, he reveals himself and he rescues his people, Israel, over and over again through the first half of Exodus. We are told that the the primary reason, not the sole reason, the primary reason, the ultimate reason for God doing all of these things is so that the world may know, so that Moses may know, and Israel may know, and Pharaoh may know, and all of Egypt and all the world may know who God is. And so before we begin meditating on our text this morning, would you join me in a word of prayer asking for God's grace on us? Father in heaven, this is indeed your word. Every word of it, every letter is a gift of your grace to us. For had you not, had you not revealed yourself, we would never know you. We would never know the hope that we might have in you. We would be lost and condemned Deservedly so, justly so, but you have been gracious. So we pray that you, our Father, by your Spirit, may so work in us that we may see and savor you, rejoicing in your good grace this morning. In Christ Jesus we pray. Amen. We can handle a lot of things about heroes. But we typically, when we think of a hero, we are thinking of someone who is supremely confident, supremely competent and capable. We are okay with uncertainty. Indeed, heroes are born out of uncertain times. But it strikes us as odd when someone is a hero and yet very, very insecure in and of themselves. We typically do not think of heroes as being very insecure people. I grew up My dad loved the old Superman um, movies. You may remember them with Christopher Reeves. And that guy was supremely confident. There was nothing insecure about Superman. I mean, you can shoot lasers out of your eyes. You're bulletproof. You can fly. What's there to be uncertain about? What we find in our text is we come to this man, Moses, whom the Lord has met with. He revealed his compassion. He's revealed his holiness. He's revealed his sufficiency. One of the things that we find, especially prevalent in our text, is Moses' own self-insecurity. He just doesn't feel competent. He doesn't feel capable. He doesn't feel worthy. And yet, this is the one that the Lord has chosen to work through. 
And so walk with me as we're going to begin in verse 16. Walk with me through the text. Earlier, God has told Moses he is going to send him back to Egypt. And he repeats this, verse 16. Now he gives him the command to go, go back to Egypt. And here he tells him exactly what he wants him to do. Go, verse 16 and 17, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and Jacob, appeared to me saying, here he tells him what to say, I have surely visited you. That is, I have seen, I have watched over you, and now I am acting. I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. There God promises to bring his people out of Egypt, but not just to bring them out and grant them freedom so that now they can do whatever they want, go wherever they want, wander aimlessly if they want. He is is intending to rescue them out and to bring them into a good land. The land, all of those people groups that he he named there, those ites, these are the people groups that were named back in Genesis chapter 15 when God made his promise to Abraham. These are the people that God is bringing his people out to displace and he's displacing them because of the great wickedness of these people. Their sin, by this point, has reached the point when God must... Because of his justice, he must act. So God is bringing his people up out of the land. And you'll notice it to a land flowing with milk and honey. It gives the image of, of a, this isn't to be taken literally. That is if there is literal milk and honey flowing out of the rocks and streams. That, that's not what you should read this as. This is a, a figure of speech. It is depicting a good land. It, it is almost to, to cast in mind That just as God had kicked humanity out of the Garden of Eden, so now he is in part bringing them back. He is bringing them back to his land, to his place that he has promised them. But we go on. God not only instructs Moses where to go, what to do and what to say. Now in verses 18 to 22, he declares what will be. Then they will heed your voice. So the people of Israel are going to listen. And you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, you're going to go to the king of Egypt, and you shall say to him, the Lord, God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please, let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders that is signs, which I will do in the midst in its midst, and after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people, that is the people of Egypt, I'm sorry, this, the people of Israel, I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be that when you go, that you shall not go empty-handed, but every woman shall ask of her na- neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, ask of her for articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Just a couple of things there real quick. Did you notice how in verse 18, there's this, the the request that Moses is to give, this command, let my people go, isn't so much a command, it's a request to let them go three days journey into the wilderness. And there has been some discussion about what 
is going on here. Some have said or suggested that God is calling Moses here to lie to Pharaoh. And we're just going to go three days journey and then we're going to come back. It is impossible to reconcile a God who commands his servant to lie with a God who is himself the God of truth. There are two other ways that Christians have generally viewed this. One is to view this as a as a precursor to the ultimate request. That is, he was going to go and ask, ask, will you let us go into the wilderness and then we'll return? And if Pharaoh were to let them do that, then they would return and then he would give the greater request. So this was a precursor in some, some view it that this is merely the first request that is others are going to follow. But the Lord is saying that he's not even going to grant this small request how much more would he not grant the ultimate request of letting you go? That is one possibility. But I think a stronger, a better possibility is that by Moses asking Israel to be allowed a three-day journey into the wilderness in which they would be allowed to worship at Mount Sinai, that this would have been understood by Pharaoh, by the Egyptians, even by the Israelites themselves, as a request for freedom. This isn't just, let us go and then we're going to come back. This is, hey, you let us go. We're going to go three days journey. We're not returning. I think this would have been understood that way. Very similar to when perhaps one of you comes into the living room sometime and you say, pass me the remote. You're not just interested in the remote for the TV, right? You're interested in changing the channel. Or when someone approaches you and says, do you have a second? They're not really just interested in a second. They're interested in an indefinite amount of time. Or some of you have teenagers who have begun driving and they come to you and they say, mom, dad, can I have the keys? They're they're not interested in merely walking around the house with your keys. They want to take the car. They're asking for permission. And so on one level, I think that's what's happening here. He's like, look, let us go and worship. And it would have been understood, we're going. We're going to worship. We're going for good. However we are to understand this request, it is clear that Pharaoh, did, Pharaoh is determinedly obstinate. He will not free God's people. But did you notice that last verse? God's people, though they are now slaves, they will not leave empty-handed. That's what you would expect. Slaves, they, they're, they're, they're leaving, they're escaping, they're escaping with nothing. They have nothing, and they escape with nothing. In our own country, we do not have examples of those who made it through the Underground Railroad from the south into the north to escape to their freedom. They, They did not bring loads and loads of things and belongings with them. They could not. But here God makes a particularly unusual promise. If it was going to be impossible to imagine that God's people would be allowed to leave after centuries of slavery, how much more impossible would it be that not only would they, they're not going to steal. Notice, they're not stealing. God says he is going to put it into the hearts of the Egyptians so that when all the women simply go to their neighbors and ask, hey, I like that shirt. I like your gold earrings. I like that, that necklace you're wearing. The people are going to give it to them. That's incredible. 
And that's the promise that God makes. But God, despite these promises, despite these predictions, Moses yet still finds all of this hard to believe. His first objection in chapter 3, verse 11, is who am I? I am unworthy. And God says, doesn't say, oh no, Moses, you're actually a very worthy man. No, he says, don't worry, I'm going to go with you. And then his second objection, just a couple of verses later, in chapter 3, verse 13, his question is not who am I, but who are you? And God says, I am the self-sustaining, the all-sufficient God. I am who I am. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. Here in chapter 4, verse 1, we read his third objection. Then Moses answered and said, despite God's promises, predictive promises, Moses asks, But suppose they, that is the people of Israel, suppose they're not going to believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, the Lord has not appeared to you, which is all legitimate. This is a legitimate objection. Remember, Moses has already gone to them and they have rejected him 40 years earlier. He's been rejected by them. More than this, what a great, great question. He's going to say, God told me this and they're going to ask well, how do I know God told you? Prove it. That is a legitimate objection. God's response. Notice verse 2 to 9. So the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He says, the rod, his walking rod. And he said, the Lord says, cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses fled from it. And the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail, which is is a very foolish thing to do with serpents and snakes, unless you know what kind of snake it is. Some of you might know that. But Moses reaches out his hand and he catches it and it becomes a rod in his hand. It becomes it turns back into a rod. In verse 5, the Lord tells him, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Furthermore, the Lord said to him, now put your hand in your coat, in your bosom, in, under your cloak. And he put his hand under his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous. It was diseased like snow. And he said, put your hand back into your cloak, back into your bosom again. So he put his hand in his bosom again and drew it out. And behold, it was restored like his other. Then God gives him a third sign. He says, then it will be, if they do not believe you, nor he, the message of the first sign, that they may believe the message of the latter sign. And it shall be, if they do not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, that you shall take water from the river and pour it on the dry land. The water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. So God gives him these three signs. He displays his power. Moses gives a fourth objection. In verse 10, then Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent. Neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant. But I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. And God's response to Moses' proclamation of his own unfitness, his own insecurity about his ability, his competency. The Lord says, so the Lord said to him, who made man's mouth? Who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. 
The Lord has given Moses everything he needs and more. And yet Moses offers up a fifth objection. And here the layers of Moses' heart are being completely unpeeled and his heart is now exposed. And in verse 13 he simply says, Oh my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. That is, here my Lord, send someone else. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. And look, he is also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth. And I will teach you what you shall do. So he shall be by, he shall be your spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God. That is, as God is communicating to Moses, so Moses will be communicating to Aaron, his spokesman, his prophet. And the Lord says, and you shall take this rod in your hand, with which you shall do the signs. Here in the face of Moses' outright stubbornness and unwillingness to God, the Lord is just and righteous in his anger at Moses. That is, his anger is righteous here. It is just. It doesn't, it's not sinful anger. It doesn't come over him. It's not that he has run out of patience. That is a, a, a very low view of God. It's not that God's frustration here has just now overtaken his mercy and grace. As if his anger has now gotten the better of him. No, God's anger here is his chosen and settled, unchanging response to the hardness of Moses' heart and his stubborn desire to not do what God is calling him to do. In fact, what we find in Moses is the very same thing we are going to find later in, in Pharaoh. God is angry, but he doesn't act sinfully. Instead, the way you find the Lord acting here is patience, is it not? It's patience. Let me just make some general observations about this text before we, we move on to where this text is moving us, what, what, how God primarily reveals himself to Moses. First, I, I just want us to take a moment and appreciate the honesty by which, the honesty, uh, by which we can see Moses, the way he is depicted here. Think of the many other religions in the world whether it's Mormonism, whether it is Islam, whether it is so many, so many religions, and yet how do they whitewash over the sins and the faults of their leaders? How they cover them over, patch them over, so that the people may look at them and follow them and believe them and, 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 revere, and revere them. And here, Exodus is written by Moses. And he delivers to us an honest evaluation of himself. We can glean two things from this. First, that the Bible is less concerned with giving us a a whitewashed picture of the spiritual heroes of faith. And it is more concerned with truth. More concerned with what is real. The second You know, back in Genesis 3, God had promised that there was coming one who would deliver his people, who would rescue his people. And part of what is happening here is that we are, as we 
evaluate Moses, we are going to see for all the good that he is going to do by the mighty hand of God, he is not that promised deliverer. He is not that one. He himself falls short. Moses is, while rightly considered a hero of the faith, he is a problematic man. More than this, notice God's wise patience with his insecure servant. How many of you, whether it's with a child, whether it is in the workplace, whether it is with someone younger or beneath you in, in terms of responsibility, and they ask you question after question about, after question about what the, you are telling them to do, and you do not just, you just revert, you, we lose our patience. And God patiently answers all the questions and objections that Moses raises. And even when he responds to the outright disobedience of Moses' heart, he is still providing, still showing mercy, still being patient with him. Every step along the way, God deals patiently and graciously with Moses. You know, when Job questions God, God confronts Job with a series of questions. And Job needed those things. When Elijah questions God, God gives him food and sleep. And then he meets with him. And when Moses Moses questions God, God shows enormous grace and he patiently answers every single one of his objections. Now, God deals individually and uniquely with each and every one of us, which should encourage each of us to go to him individually. He knows what is best for us, and so we may go to him and pour out our hearts to him to lay our burdens on him, knowing that he is patient, knowing that he is gracious, knowing that he will listen. Third, notice what God doesn't do with any of Moses' objections. Moses doesn't, I'm sorry, the Lord doesn't change Moses. He doesn't alter him. He doesn't change his circumstances. In the face of Moses' lack of self-confidence, God declares that he will be present with him. In the face of Moses' lack of knowledge, God reveals himself to him. In the face of Moses' insecurity about being able to convince the leaders of his people in, the, in a Pharaoh, God promises his providential power. In the face of Moses' feelings of unfitness, God reminds him that he, that the Lord, is his providential creator. And in the face of Moses' stubborn refusal, God providentially provides an assistant. Now, we are so often looking for God to change us, to change our circumstances, to make things better to fix our problem, to fix whatever issue we are facing. But, and we rightfully look to God for help, but we want to be the ones to determine how God helps us. We want God to take away our anxiety, to fix our issues, to take away certain desires, to change us from the inside out, to make us more like someone else, to give us better circumstances, different circumstances, a better job, a better situation. But in his mercy, God often answers our needs, not by doing any of those things, but by promising his presence, his power, and his provision. You and I must learn, then, is to lean 
on the Lord. Not only, who has not only made promises, but has shown us with his action. That he who has rescued us at the enormous cost of his own son, he will not fail to graciously give us everything that his son has purchased for us. He will not fail to do every good thing for us. More than this, we must see from this passage what the Lord is showing to Moses is God's providential reign, his sovereignty, his providential rule. And we distinguish between God's sovereignty and his providence When we think of God's power, his omnipotence, we might think of it being limitless, infinite, perfect in power. It does not grow, it does not decrease. God's power is always perfect. But God's providence, his sovereignty, is more than God's power. God's sovereignty is God's power applied. That is, it is God's It is the infinite and the perfect power of God applied to everything in the world. To every situation, to every detail, to everything, to every person, to every circumstance. That is God's sovereignty. But sovereignty carries the idea purely of God's will, of his authority. Providence takes it one step further. Providence is something more. Providence is God's power. It is God's power applied. And it is God's power applied according to God's good purposes for his people and his glory. That is, providence is, it highlights not only the rule of God, but the wisdom of God, the grace of God, the love of God. We often think of God's sovereignty, but when you look at the writings of faithful Christians in centuries past, you will often read them talking about, not just about his sovereignty, but of his providence. That God is providentially ruling and reigning over everything. So, Stephen Charnock, who has written enormous, wonderful books on who God is, his attributes, he wrote an entire book on divine providence. This is an excellent book. And he writes in the 1660s and 1670s, he writes this, there is not a single molecule in all the universe that lies outside God's control. The Lord knows and directs all creation from the mightiest angel to the smallest earthworm. And in his goodness and wisdom, God exerts his authority over every single act, large and small, good and evil. He has woven all all creation into a salvation story that culminates in the cross. This is divine providence. And Stephen Charnock doesn't write from the armchair of comfort. No, he writes in England during the 1660s and 70s at the height of the reign of Bloody Mary. He himself, along with countless other pastors in England, suffered enormously. And it's during that period where he is considering and writing these words. This was echoed 150 years later by Charles Spurgeon, who has penned one of my favorite quotes. He writes, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. 
at every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit, as well as the sun in the heavens, that the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. The creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of a devastating pestilence. The fall of leaves from a poplar tree are as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. Certainly this confidence in the complete providence of God has been a powerful encouragement to Christians over the centuries. And you might ask, isn't providence just like fate? A Christian version of fate. You know, fate says whatever is must be. But understanding and believing God's providence isn't merely what is must be, but whatever God has ordained must be. Fate is blind and aimless. Providence is directed by the wisdom and the goodness, the justice and the mercy of God for the good of his people and the glory of his name. It is this providence that Paul the Apostle praises in Romans 11.36. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. That is providence. And that is what this passage stresses more than anything else. And there are three ways, three aspects of God's providence that this passage highlights that are meant to be an encouragement for you and I. The first we see from verse 16 of chapter 3 all the way to verse 9 of chapter 4. There we see Moses' confidence in his ability to persuade the people of Israel. God grants him three different signs. The walking rod changed to a serpent. The diseased hand restored the water from the Nile, turned to blood, which is itself a foreshadowing of God's God's providential rule, even over the, the gods that are worshipped by Egypt. But consider what we have here. This is more than just sorcery or illusion. God is fundamentally changing the very nature of these things. A a, a piece of wood, a dead piece of wood in the hand of Moses becomes a living creature, changed at its very molecular structure, changed in its DNA, and then it reverts back at the command of God. A hand that is healthy and fine, is diseased in a moment and then restored again, fundamentally changed. More than this, water taken from the Nile was promised that it would become blood, changed immediately down to its very very essence. This is power over creation itself, providential power over creation itself. This is evident when we consider God's promises Earlier, in verses 16 to 22, there God makes a promise, a predictive prophecy of what will be. That the people of Israel, he tells Moses, they will believe you, and then you will go to Pharaoh, and he will oppose you, but I'm going to get victory over him in the end. And then, at the very end, before you leave, I am going to change the hearts of the Egyptians so that they are willing to give up their clothing, their gold, their wealth. They're just going to give it to you. What we see is God's providential power even over human decisions.
And you should not think that this predictive prophecy is merely God telling us what he knows. That's not what predictive prophecy is. Predictive prophecy isn't merely God saying, okay, I know all of these independent actors are going to do this thing, and I'm going to try to work it all out for my good and for my glory and your good. That's, that's not what predictive prophecy is. Predictive prophecy is God declaring to his people what he has already planned will be. There's probably no better example of this than that of Pharaoh. Three times here in, in In chapter 3, God simply says what Pharaoh will do. Later in chapter 4, we are told, verse 21, we read these words. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people of go. He is going to declare to Moses... Again and again and again, before chapter 8, before we ever have a record in chapter 8, verse 11, that Pharaoh hardens his own heart, we are told five different times that God is going to, that from God, that he will harden Pharaoh's heart and that Pharaoh's heart will be hardened. What we find is that God rules providentially even over the sinful choices of human beings. Not that he is himself the author of it. We should not think of it that way. God, it is not that Pharaoh wanted or would want to let the people of Israel go, but that God is preventing him. That's not what's happening. Rather, what is happening is that God is, in his judgment, giving Pharaoh exactly what Pharaoh wants and allowing him to do it. Directing him. God is providentially ruling over all things, not, over, not just over nature, but even over our decisions, even our desires. What Moses needed to see and what you and I need to see is that God is not foiled by the schemes of those who hate him and oppose him. Even those who oppose God's righteous and good purposes, they themselves are, in the providential rule of God, they are furthering the providential reign of God, the providential purposes of God. God is not frustrated in his providence, neither by the mightiest nor by the incompetence of leaders. Many of you, you turn on the news and you wonder what in the world is going on. God is not frustrated by what is happening or not happening in Washington or in Harrisburg or in Philadelphia, or in your hometown. He is providentially ruling over all things. This, of course, isn't the only place we see this. If we were to try to track down every reference to the providential rule of God, we would be here till tomorrow, till next week. Psalm 135, 6-7 sums it up. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps, he it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. The Lord does whatever he pleases. Moses needed to see this at the very beginning. He needed to see that the providential purposes of God would not be foiled or frustrated by the obstinacy 
of Pharaoh. How else would he come to live in faith that this God who commands him to go would send a plague when he said he would? How else would he have the confidence that God was going to lead them through the Red Sea? How else would he have the confidence that the water was going to break open and give, I'm sorry, the rock would break open and give water? Or that bread would magically, seemingly magically appear every night for people to pick up off the ground in the morning? And if you and I don't see this, if missionaries and pastors and elders and deacons and men and women and teenagers, if we do not see this, how can we ever hope to believe God and follow him in the challenges of our lives? God's providential power over all things is the great confidence, not only for your life and mine, it is the great confidence for missions. We can go wherever God leads because we will never find ourselves in a place over which God is not absolutely providentially ruling and reigning. No matter how hostile, no matter how unstable. Some of you are going to be returning to school. Some of you are starting a job, a new project, waiting for the Lord to provide something. It is necessary for you to believe this, to know this. Parents, as you send your kids off, whether it's to kindergarten, to college, or to a new life with someone else, you must trust and rest yourself in the providence of God. It is necessary for us as we wonder How can God sustain us this next week, this next month, this next year? God's providential rule is what sustains us on the mission that he has sent us. There's one other aspect. We see this, or second, we see God's providence in the way that he has designed us. Notice in verses 10 to 12, Moses complains about his personal limitations. He says, I'm slow of speech. and It's not exactly clear what he's talking about. There's various... There's debate about what kind of limitation he had, if any. Clearly, he felt limited. He felt as if he was not physically capable to do what God was calling him to do. But I want you to know God's assurance in verses 11 to 12. So the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes the mute? Who makes the deaf, who makes the seeing, who makes the blind, have not I, the Lord. Every limitation that you have is given to you by God in his providence for your good and his glory. Those things that so frustrate us are part of God's design for us. It is God's, your your limitations are designed by God for your sanctification, for your good in Him. My wife often gets frustrated because I am hard of hearing. Rightfully so. My hearing loss is for her good. Sometimes not for mine. The way you are, 
is for your good. Though these things are painful and difficult at times, if we knew what God now knows, we would not choose anything else than what he has appointed for us. And this is true. Whether we are blind or just have poor eyesight, whether we are deaf or have simply hardness of hearing, whether we are able to bear children or not, whether we have some other physical deformity, whether we have dementia or Down syndrome or difficulty walking and bad, a bad back, arthritis, diabetes, diabetes, heart arrhythmia or mental health issues or countless other limitations and hardship. It is not that God creates these things. It is that God not only rules over sinful choices, though he is not the author of sin, he even rules over the effects of sin in our lives. There is nothing outside of his control. And all of those effects are directed by him, by his good providence, for your good. Our limitations do not disqualify us from being and doing what he calls us to be and to do. Rather, they are to teach us to rely on him. Last, I want you to notice God's providential providential provision for us. Moses, finally, at the very end, he wants to beg off, God, please just send someone else, anyone else. And God isn't giving Moses a choice here. He simply tells him, you will go. And God, in his grace, tells him that he is providing an assistant. He's going to give him his brother, Aaron, Moses' brother will be Moses' assistant. What a wonderful provision. But I want you to notice, as he is providing Aaron, what we find is that there in verse 14, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well, and look, he is also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. God is going to provide Aaron, Moses' brother, to assist him. But the tense of that verb tells us that Aaron is already on the way. Aaron has already been sent. And think about just the providential timing of all this. Forty years, Moses has been in Egypt. And all of a sudden, Aaron's like, you know what? I'm going to take a trip. I want to see my brother. Aaron doesn't know it yet. But he has been sent by God to be an assistant. Long before God ever even came to Moses. Long before Moses ever raised his first objection. God was already in the work, in the process of providing for him an assistant. Before Moses even knows that he has a need. Before he can even raise the objection. God is providentially working to supply All that he needs at the perfect time and not a moment too soon. This is our hope. This is our hope for our own church as we send out missionaries. We make these commitments to go, to send, to support. And we trust the Lord to provide. It is our hope for our own needs. We do not know where... This will come, the money, the resources will come from the, 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 the time that we will be able to need to do this or that. And yet, the Lord, we trust, will provide. It is the hope of every gospel worker that God will provide and sustain them. I saw this firsthand as a young man 
My dad was serving as a pastor. And we, at the time, grew up not far from here, about a half hour from here. Grew up in a church. Church is about 1,250 people and went to a Christian school nearby. Between my junior and senior year of high school, my family moved. I, I was not consulted about this move. I didn't want to move. I would have much rather finished out my senior year at the school and at the church where I had known. But my parents didn't consult me. The gall, right? The nerve. My dad took a church, became the pastor of a church out in Midwestern PA, and along with that move, resulted in a a very significant pay cut for him. But they were trusting the Lord to provide. And I'll never forget that that first year, as we were over there, I was going to school, we had very little. But yet we saw the Lord provide. He provided for clothes when we needed it, when our cars needed to be repaired. God always took care of us. But I'll never forget My brother and I, we were in high school, and we were involved in high school sports. And and as such, we were like most typical teenage boys, eating anything that was, like, not nailed down. And we would come home from school, and we would open the refrigerator, and we would raid the refrigerator. But there were many times we would open the refrigerator, and there would be very little left to raid. And we would go to the cabinet, the cupboard, and we would open it up, and there would be very little there to raid. And I'll never forget coming home. It happened multiple times. We... We'd come, we would be hungry, my brother and I, we would open it up, there would be almost nothing. My mom would come home, and she's got to make dinner, she's starting to make dinner, and my dad would come home later, and he's asking, what are we having for dinner tonight? And I never forget, on several occasions, my mom would say, I don't know, and she wasn't saying, I don't know, because she hadn't decided yet, she was saying, she didn't know, because we didn't have the food to make dinner. Then a man from our church, unknown to us, would pull into our driveway. Truck loaded with food. He said, I was thinking of you guys today. Take everything you need. The Lord providentially rules and reigns over everything. Make no mistake. Before the need was ever acutely felt, God was providing. And you might ask, why does he not provide for us before? Why does he ever let us feel the pain of the need? What, if he's so good and powerful, why doesn't he help us before the need? Wouldn't that be more merciful, more loving? So that we don't ever feel that suffering, that anxiety, that frustration, that, that, that angst. What's going to come? Why does he ever let us get to this point? It is so that we will learn to trust him. To treasure him. That we will be able to test the words of Jesus. To seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things. They will be added to you. Jesus didn't say that because he thought it would make a great bumper sticker or make a great Instagram post. He said it because it's true. And if the Lord has led you into trial, you can be sure that he will meet you there. That he is already ordering out how that trial will be satisfied, how it will be met, how the need will be resolved. And not a moment sooner than is at the perfect time.
This is why we sing as believers with confidence and joy, even in our even in our darkest hours, what we will sing as the closing of the service, O God, our help in ages past, our help for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast, and our eternal home. Under the shadow of thy throne, thy saints have dwelt secure. Sufficient is thine arm alone, and our defense is sure. Before the hills in order stood, or earth received her frame, from everlasting thou art God, to endless years the same. O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. Be thou our guide while life shall last, and our eternal home. The Lord is our providential ruler. Trust in him. Let's pray. Oh God, you are our help. You are even now at this moment providentially ruling and reigning over every little thing in our life. You bring us into trial. You do not abandon us there. You promise to go with us. And in the person of your son, you have met us there. There on the cross, your providence led him. And there on the cross, he suffered and died for sinners. Oh God, our Father in Christ Jesus, teach us this morning to rest in you. Teach us this morning to trust you, to not merely go be passive and wait, but to be active, knowing that you, who are providentially ruling over all things, are guiding us even in this moment. Strengthen our weak faith, O God, that we may live for your glory. Go for the sake of the gospel and support our missionaries who have gone in the name of your Son. This we pray in his name. Amen.